pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. How many can say that with me? We do not have a flag in here. Let's say it together. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. It was written in 1892 by a guy named Francis Bellamy, who was a Baptist pastor, actually, and was teaching his children or his students in his school about how to be patriotic. And in the original address and when the students would recite it, did you know that they would raise their palm and they would go like this and they would say the Pledge of Allegiance in this manner? And it wasn't until, what war am I talking about? Where Hitler required his soldiers to do that, pretty much. We then changed it to where it now goes over our hearts. And in 1942, the Pledge of Allegiance became the official pledge of the United States of America and for its citizens. But if you take a note in the middle of the address of the Pledge of Allegiance, there's a phrase, one nation... Under God, indivisible. Wouldn't it be great if we were like that today? One nation under God. And if we were one nation under God, we would be indivisible. But the problem is we're not one nation, are we, today? And we're not under God anymore. And I wonder how indivisible we're going to be in the future. But imagine if you were one marriage, one family, one church under God, would you be indivisible? Absolutely. For the power of one has incredible power and it affects and it influences not only individual members of that family unit and that fellowship, but also all who belong to that church and that faith community. There is incredible power when we all come together as one body, one church, under one Lord, with one faith, and with one hope. And one body today should and always ought to live in community with one another as one body under God. And if we will become that kind of church, I'm convinced we will be invincible, we'll be indestructible, we'll be indivisible. And there's nothing that the enemy nor the individual can do to divide us, to separate us, and cause us to lose the unity and the oneness that I believe Christ died so that we could enjoy as one body under one church and today and from now on, hopefully, under one roof. One church living in community with one another. I want us to go to the slide and I want us to talk about what that little phrase, one body, means. For we identified verses 1 through three last week, we kind of laid a foundation and, and we kind of discussed and we talked about exactly what is the foundation for unity. But today I want us to look at that one verse and that verse will help us understand are really those two phrases in that single verse, verse four, where we see in the text, it says one body. So let's identify and let's talk about the word body. All right, let me have the next slide if I can. One body. We got a glitch going on back there? We prayed that there would be no glitches today. There we go. This is a dry run, first time ever. There's going to be a little bit of glitch, right? 
Look at the word body. Let's identify the body. The body refers to the church. It is the invisible or mystical body composed of every believer who has placed their trust and put their faith in Christ as Savior and Lord. Immediately upon conversion, the believer is automatically placed in the body of Christ at conversion by the Spirit of God according to God's Word, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 12-31. And while believers are members of the one indivisible body, they are not excused from connecting and committing to a local body, contributing and cooperating as a community. There are several aspects about the body. First of all, we see that there is a universal body. While it is true, this text does talk about the fact that there are no divisions in regard to denominations. As long as those denominations profess Jesus Christ in the light of the gospel and according to the word of God. And any Bible-believing, gospel-centric church that has and is doctrinally sound and doctrinally pure is a church that should cooperate and constitute as the universal body of Christ. Although, while we do not baptize people into the universal body of Christ, in other words, someone baptizes and then say, well, I'm not going to connect with Emmanuel, I'm going to connect with the universal church, so I just want to follow Christ and be baptized, we baptize people in to the congregational body. For there are two aspects in the New Testament about the universal body of Christ, which makes us all one who profess faith in Christ. But the Bible also talks about us connecting individually to the smaller body, to the congregation that composes primarily, let's say, Emmanuel Baptist Church. For while we have brothers and sisters out there who are connecting and committing to other churches out there, we as individual members are connecting to the individual body, the congregation, the community of faith in which we fellowship and associate with called Emmanuel Baptist Church. And it's here that we connect and commit in community, building each other up, encouraging one another, strengthening one another, cooperating together in order to fulfill the great commission that God gave the church, not only universal but I'm convinced gave it to us congregational as well as individual, those of us who are disciples of Christ. So the body is the church. All who profess faith in Jesus Christ and have accepted him as their Savior and Lord are part of the universal body. But we must then connect and commit to a local body called a local church, a congregation like Emmanuel. And that's what Christ intended when he instituted and he created and he died for the church. But the body, notice it says, it's one body. So the word one in the next slide helps us understand that one is that there's only one body of believers, the church, which is composed of every saint who has trusted or will trust in Christ as Savior Lord. There is no denominational, geographical, ethical, or racial body. There is no Gentile, Jew, male, female, slave, or free man body. There is only Christ's body, and the unity of that body is the heart of the book of Ephesians, according to MacArthur in his book of Ephesians, in his commentary. However, many seek to unite all Christians in a way that is not biblical. For oneness built on anything other than biblical truth seeks a unity that is not built on, an, that is not built on a stable foundation. Biblical truth is non-negotiable. And as a congregation, we only cooperate as a congregation with other congregations who are biblically, shall I say, accurate, <laughs> or like us, or right? <laughs> is, it, is it possible to say right? Because I believe we're right. 
I mean, there was a day and a time when I was young, and I thought maybe Baptists didn't have the right uh, interpretation of what church should be and what church should look like. And I began to study other denominations and began to search out. And I finally came back to my senses and realized and recognized that we as Baptists operate closer to the Bible than any other denomination. That's why I'm Baptist. And while there are other brothers and sisters out there who also are connected to Christ and are in the universal body of Christ, there's a congregational body that I and you and we belong to called Emmanuel that interprets the Bible as we interpret and follow the leadership of the Lord under the direction of the Word of God and the Spirit of God in the direction that God would have us go. That's what makes us one body. So there's a universal oneness that's non-negotiable, that's based upon biblical truth, But there's a congregational unity that also is based upon biblical truth as we come together to worship the Lord and to follow him. So let's take a look at what the text says to us about one body. Now what I want to do in this text is I want to take each of the the little phrases here, one body, one faith, one hope, and I want us to sort of analyze those individually as we talk about our oneness. And it's interesting to me that as he begins to lay out these these disciplines of the church or these strategic points about the church, that he's already addressed some of them and he will address many of them after this verse in context of the whole letter to the book of Ephesians. And so as I was sitting down thinking about how can I convey the aspect or the, the totality of what God is trying to say through these words, it's important. Imperative, I think, and incredibly important that we go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, through the end of the book and find every place where it talks about and describes exactly what is in this sentence, in this verse, and then identify what he's trying to mean or say or convey to us through this text. So we're going to go back and look at Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3, and 4, and 5 in different sections of the, of the book of Ephesians or the letter to the Ephesian church, and we, are, we here are going to identify then some of the aspects or the disciplines about what it means to be one body. One body. What does that mean? Let's look then, first of all, at Ephesians chapter 1. We see that the first discipline described for us in a healthy church, a unified church, is that this church is centered in Christ. You cannot have a healthy church, a a unified church, unless Jesus Christ is at the core, he is centric in not only the message, which is the gospel, but in every aspect of what it seeks to do in ministry and in mission. It must be Christ-centric. If it's centered on any personality other than Christ, any ministry other than Christ, any function other than Jesus, it's going to become eventually a disunified, dysfunctional body, and it's not going to be healthy, not only as a church, but to the individual members that belong to that church. And anytime Christ is not at the center, at the core of my life individually and our lives corporately, we become disunified. For Christ is centric in the church and in the individuals who belong to that church. Notice he says in Ephesians 1, verse 22 and 23, and he put all things under his feet, And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We're going to jump down now to a passage that many times is used in reference to marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 22. We're going to come back to this later on and look at other parts of this verse. But in chapter 5, verse 22 through 24, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands. Can I get an amen to that, guys? It's a little weak now. Ladies, you want to amen that? 
And that's what I thought. For the husband is the head of the wife. Amen, guys? The wife is the neck that turns the head, it says here. Doesn't it say that there? Oh, that's a loose paraphrase. Yeah, that's what I thought. The wife, even as Christ, notice what it says, as Christ is the head of the church. Notice, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ. In this incredible passage, in this first chapter of the book of Ephesians, God is elevating Jesus to this incredible position that that is his because of who he is. He is the son of God. He was virgin born. He lived a sinless life and died a vicarious death on the cross. But he died on that cross and he put his lifeless body in a tomb. He literally physically died, but Christ in his power raised Jesus from the dead. And he elevated him now to a position where it says in Ephesians that Christ now sits at the right hand of the Father. He is next to to God on the throne sitting there, right there. And the right hand elevates Jesus to a position of incredible authority, incredible power, where he now is not only king of kings, but he is also Lord of lords. And God shares his power with Jesus. They are one and the same. And Christ now has been elevated to this authoritative position, not only over all creation, not only over all the universe, but also over, if you notice, the church. Jesus has complete authority over his church. For the church is his bride. And there is a divine order here. It's a divine order. It's not a man-made order. And if you get this order wrong in marriage, you wind up messing up God's intent for marriage. And if you get this order, this divine order wrong in the church, you mess up the church. For it is God, it is his son over the church. Who's in charge? Who's the head of the church? Who? Come on now. Who? Jesus. We're his bride. He is our husband. And as our husband, we are to submit to him in everything. Now, he is our Lord. We, as a church, are to elevate the authority and the supremacy and the the authority of Christ over any individual, any group of individuals, and even us as a corporate body. He is the head. Roseanne gave me for Christmas last year a a dartboard. And I just got it out the other day. It's been tucked away. And I'm under a lot of stress, as you can tell. Again, you appreciate what's going on here. Isn't this pretty cool? I think it's pretty cool. And I want to thank all the people that made this possible. There are many people that worked many hours to make this happen. But I got the dartboard out, and I started throwing, you know, and, and on that dartboard, there's a little red thing. What's that called? Called what? The bullseye. What's the objective of the dart game? To get in the bullseye. Everybody's aiming for the bullseye. How often do you hit the bullseye? You know, I've determined it's how close you get to the, to the thing, you know. If I'm about this far, I can hit it every time, man. That's pretty cool. But the further I get, the harder it is, isn't it? Well, what is at the core, at the center of the church that we're aiming at, that we're elevating, that we're seeking to, to, to elevate and to follow and to become? His name is? And if at any time... Anyone 
any ministry, any group of people seek to become centric in the fellowship and to take over and to run the church, there's going to be disunity, disharmony, and a disruption into what the Lord intends for his church. He is the head of the church. He is the head of my life. He's the head of your life. He's the Lord in your marriage. He's Lord in your family. And he's Lord in your church because he is Lord over all creation, over all, everyone, everything, for forever. For his position is a position that was given to him by God the Father. And because of that position, there's a divine order. And we surrender and submit to his lordship over our individual lives, over our marriages, our family, especially over his church. Who created the church? He did. Who are we? We are his bride. Who's the head of our lives and our church? He is. One of the first disciplines of a healthy church is that it's centric or it's centered on Christ. Secondly, we notice in this text that it's connected through the cross. There's a connection here that brings us all together, and that connection is through the cross. Take a look at the text in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross... Notice that he might reconcile us both to one God in one body. How? Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Skip down to chapter 3, verse 6. This is a mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It's interesting that chapter 2 is, is reminding the people that he's writing to of who they're related to. He's telling them of their identity. Before they came to Christ, who were they? They were, they were, there was a problem. They were at enmity with God. There was a hostility between them and God. And that hostility and that enmity was as a result of sin. And the consequence of that sin is separation from God. But Christ became then our substitute then as the provision of God to die on a cross where he took upon himself sins that he did not commit. So that when we placed our faith and trust in him as our savior, those sins now are transferred to him in his atoning death on the cross, and he dies for our sins, thus doing what? Reconciling us now into a right relationship with the Father. What has brought us to be one with God? Jesus, our faith in his redemptive work on that cross. And now he suggests here that we no longer are hostile. between. There's no hostility between us and God, but now there's peace. Isn't it great to know that? That you're not at enmity with God anymore. That there's not a hostile relationship between you and God. But there's this incredible relationship of peace where I can enter boldly into the very throne room of God and be received by him. Why? Because of Christ and his life, his atoning death, and the power of his resurrection. And it's that cross that has reconciled us, brought us together with the Father in a relationship of peace. But I want you to notice the next step that he takes because this is huge. He says there to reconcile us both to God. It's an incredible statement. Don't miss it. Because he's writing to a group of people who are, who are believers, who, who by, by, by tradition and by their, their, uh, their birth, they're Jewish. And they place their faith and trust in Christ. And they're walking around feeling a little bit, you know, not only am I Jewish, but I now am a, a believer in Jesus. 
But then all of a sudden there are some Gentiles who come to faith in Christ, non-Jews. And the Jews are a little bit prejudicial toward these Gentiles. And they're looking down on them with disdain and disfavor as if they're not a part of the elect or the elite that they, they, they don't, can't claim the same thing that they claim. And here he's saying to them, you can't do that. Because at the cross, God through this incredible atoning death of Christ on the cross made it level for all of us in relationship to the peace that we can claim and enjoy through Christ. There is no Gentile nor Jew. There's no rich and there's no poor. There's no haves and no have-nots. There's no beautiful and unbeautiful. All of us have the same privilege to come before the very throne room of God through faith in the redemptive work of Christ on the cross and enter boldly. And it's that, that relationship with the cross that brings us together. What binds us? It's the cross. It's the cross. What does that mean? Well, let me just give you one application. I was uh, <laughs> I was coming to, to church the other day. It was Friday morning, and I wasn't in any hurry. You know, sometimes I'm in a hurry to get here, and sometimes I'm not. I don't know if you're like that or not, but I was just kind of you know, just kind of enjoying the ride and and not really in a hurry. And if you come down 47th Street, when you get to to Rock, when you're coming this way, Gail knows what I'm talking about. It turns into two lanes. And uh, as I was coming down, I, I turned into the slow lane because I was feeling kind of slow. And the car that was in front of me was going the speed limit. And because I was feeling rather slow today, and if you've ever tried to follow me, you know, I, don't, I go about five miles over. I can't believe I confess that. But I know another pastor used to be here who used to be described as someone that had a heavy foot too. Not going to say any names. But anyway, so we were going like, and there was a lady in a Mustang. Now, why would somebody own a Mustang? They want to go fast. And she was about that far from my tail. Seriously, I could see her makeup in my rearview mirror. And I was determined, I'm in the slow lane. I'm not going to let her pass. And uh, for about two miles, we traveled like that. And, she, and I could see in the rearview mirror, man, she's giving me for what? And then finally, I decided I'd let her go and... I went up and she passed, and as she passed, she gave me a very familiar sign that was not very ladylike. And I was going into my head what we were talking about on the cross. It, was it ugly for me to do that? <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going the speed limit. But if she hadn't ridden my tail, I might have gone the five miles over and let her pass anyway, but I was just determined I was not going to let her have her way. What is that? That's our sin nature, isn't it? Don't look at me like you don't have one. And imagine what sin nature does when you get behind the wheel. There are times in a body, in a fellowship, in a marriage, in a family, in a church, where our sin nature accidentally, intentionally takes over and unintentionally becomes a factor in us dealing with each other. And there's hostility, there's tension, there's sin. What takes care of that? The cross. I mean, here you have some bigoted guys who are some Jews who are denying this incredible, beautiful relationship with Christ based upon their nationality. 
bigotry, hatred, anger, jealousy, strife, gossip, all of those things can break our relationship. But what continues to bring us together, in spite of our depravity, in spite of our humanity, in spite of our intentional and unintentional things, it's the cross. Not in our marriage, but our families and in our church. And it's the cross that unites us. And whenever the cross is not central in all that we're doing, we are not connecting to the cross in a legitimate way. The end result is anything but unity, and the body ceases to be one. We are connected with the cross, and it's the cross that continues to remind us of the love, of the mercy, and the unmeasurable grace of God. You did not save yourselves, he says in Ephesians 2, for by grace you are saved through faith, in that it is not of yourselves, but it is what? The gift of God. You didn't earn, merit, deserve the salvation he gave you. He simply bestowed upon you the grace out of his mercy because he loves you. And there are times as family members, just simply because we love each other more than we hate each other, we exercise mercy. We don't treat them as they deserve to be treated, but we exercise grace in that we bestow upon them this incredible favor that they cannot ever earn nor rightly deserve. And so it's the cross that connects us. Not only is a healthy fellowship centered on Christ and connected to the cross, but thirdly, it's concentrated on spiritual growth. Interesting that I find in this text, it it says in chapter 4, verse 11 again, we see this incredible word called one. Let's take a look at it in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints of the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Notice who appoints the spiritual leaders. God does. He appoints them. It said he gave. It says, and he, God, gave the apostles. God appoints spiritual leaders. Notice the text. Who assigns their function or their role or their responsibility? God signs them. People don't sign up saying, well, I want to be an apostle. I want to be an elder. I want to be this or that. No, God not only assigns, he not only calls us, but he assigns the role, the responsibility, the function that we're going to perform. Not us. It's him. And there's some people that sometimes are just not happy with their roles. But there, there should not be any unhappiness in that. And we see where Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about how can we as members of the same body say that I don't need every other member of the body? How can we say that, that one's function is greater than the other? And he talks about the body in 1 Corinthians. Let's say this morning that when you got up, your leg decided not to cooperate. Now for some of you say that happened to me this morning. And, and now you're dragging this foot all day long. Okay? Everywhere you go, it's just not cooperating, right? Now, you can get around, right? But how hard is it going to be now? It's going to be difficult, isn't it? So then I, then I say, well, this leg is not necessary. I can chop it off. That would be a, a disastrous decision. And it's sad to me to see some of our young men and young women who come back from, from the war who have lost their limbs for our freedom. But they replace them, don't they, with man-made things that are not as good as the ones God gave us. You see, the toenail cannot say to the foot, I'm unimportant. 
God gave us toenails, and he assigned the toenail to fulfill that role and that responsibility and that function, and the toenail is incredibly important. That is until you get old and you find out that something weird happens to them, and then you have to cut them off, but anyway. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are getting there, and you know what I'm talking about. Some of us should not wear sandals. But what he's saying here is that when my relationship with Christ Jesus becomes so intimately personal and when my doctrine is pure and it is clear and when I'm moving toward the likeness of Jesus in his character and in the qualities of Christ, individually when I'm doing that, what happens to a fellowship where the members are doing that? I'm doctrinally clear and I'm doctrinally sound. I'm moving in an intimate love relationship with Christ where I'm becoming more and more like him in every way. And as you're becoming like him and I'm becoming like him and we're moving together in those qualities in a clear, cut, pure doctrinal stance, personal relating to Jesus on an intimate level, the end result is a unified body. But what happens in a marriage when all of a sudden the other person in the marriage decides that they're not going to have their devotional for a couple of weeks? Let's say they decide, you know what, I'm not going to exhibit the qualities and the characters of Christ anymore. I'm going to be selfish and self-centered. What happens to the marriage? What happens to family members when someone in the family does that? And isn't it interesting that our beautiful little children sometimes have not learned the discipline of saying no to self. And they will scream bloody murder until someone gives them what they want. We naturally come into the world like that. But when I'm getting closer and closer intimately acquainted with the person of Christ exhibiting the qualities and the characteristics of Jesus more and more like him where he's taking away and he's adding things. If you notice it says, when I am mature or mature, when I individually am like that, I'm going to have a strong marriage if my partner's like that. We're going to have a strong family as all of us are moving together. As a church, when all of us are individually moving together and, and we're growing in Christ, we're going to have a unified body. It's when I act immature that we become a disunified body. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons why there are so many divided churches today is because they are led by many immature believers. Because maturity binds. It doesn't divide. And as I'm intimately becoming connected with Christ and emulating the qualities and the characteristics of Jesus in my life, I'm going to become one with those who are doing the same. And if any time one of us is not, all hell breaks loose. Fourthly, notice that a healthy body is a collaborating body. It collaborates as a team. Notice very quickly in verse 4, notice verse 15. It's a misprint there. It's my fault. It says verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What are we building each other up in? Love. It says, you know, a collaborating church 
speaks the truth. How does it speak the truth? It speaks the truth in love. And I know sometimes we have a tendency not to speak the truth because we, we are dealing sometimes with so many individuals and so many families today and so many churches that are so dysfunctional that the truth is not welcome. The, church, the truth is not wanted. And it's imperative and important that we speak the truth, that we tell people the truth about their dysfunction. That is the loving thing to do, to ignore a dysfunction and to allow them to exist in a lie and to continue to live the life of a dysfunctional life in Christ is, a, is, is not being and is not honoring the truth. And there are times you have to just put your arms around somebody, I love you, but let me be honest with you, let me tell you the truth about what the Word of God says. But then there are those people, you know, that they want to speak the truth and they just want to go, boom! And they leave dead bodies everywhere because they're not speaking in love. You know anybody like that? They're self-righteous and they are self-appointed judges and they bring out their big, fat, thick, 1800 King James Bibles and they just, they're Bible thumpers and they just want everybody to feel, you know, I'm, I'm preaching the truth and I don't care how it hurts you or what it does to you, I'm just going to kick you in the teeth, man. Because it brings me, and in my opinion, it brings some of them joy to watch people wobble in their own unrighteousness. It makes them feel superior. Speak the truth in love. When you have a fellowship that's collaborating, there's an aspect of speaking the truth in love. But notice there's a submission to Christ. It says in the text that they were submit to Christ. Notice it says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow in every way. How? Into him who is what? The head into Christ. Who's the head? Christ is. We are all submitting individually, as I've already said, and submitting corporately to him as a church. But now moving down to the text, notice that we are now sharing in the responsibility of the local church. There's an aspect of which we are communing together and we are sharing together in the responsibility of the church. I can't make this happen by itself. I don't have the smarts to make this happen. I mean, Mike has spent hours up here working up here. Why? Because he's talented and gifted that. Harper has spent hours up here doing this. Why? Because he's talented and gifted that. Mike over here spent hours conducting and, and leading the third floor renovation up there. Why? Because he's talented and gifted in that. I don't have all of those talents and gifts, and neither do you. And it's why we need each other. I need a right arm. I need a left arm. I need, you know, eyeballs. I need ears. Uh, we moved this piano right here. And if you notice, there's not a pit here anymore. And, and when we tried to move it, just a couple of us, it's too heavy. But when we had about 10 people here, each on either side, we were able to elevate it almost with ease and to move it to where it's now planted. It took more than just one of us. It took about 10 or 15 of us. I'm not sure how many of us there was to the point when I lifted it, almost as if I didn't even exercise a single muscle doing it. I was, I was trying. I was trying to watch my back, you know. No. We need each other. Collaborating and working together. God's given you talents and abilities and gifts that I don't have and someone else is in desperate need of. And it's up to us to assume that responsibility that God gave us and to join in the work that God wants to do as we collaborate and work together. I don't know what your function, what your role is here, but don't ever look at yourself as, as unnecessary and unimportant because every one of us is necessary. Every one of us has been strategically placed by God to be where we are. And each and every one of us is 
by God's design, a part of this body, and we are all together as one, and we are all necessary. One group should never say to another, you're less important than we are. That's a lie that's either self-centered or satanically driven. We're all equally driven to believe that the Bible says that that the gospel brings us together as one body, one church, under one Lord, using what God has given us and equipped us with to fulfill not only the ministry to each other, but the mission to go forth. Then lastly, notice that the fifth and final aspect is that we're committed to righteousness. A healthy body is committed to righteousness. Interesting, in chapter 5, again, he defines marriage in this very interesting way. Look at it. It says in verse 22, and again, I remind you that what he's saying here is he's, he's comparing and he's illustrating the relationship that Christ has with the church to the husband and the wife's relationship in marriage. So, that being said, verse 22, Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. May I add, ladies... That when your husband loves you in a sacrificing, self-denying, endless love and elevates you to the place in which you deserve to be elevated as God's creation and, and, and as his sister in Christ, you won't have a hard time submitting to a husband like that. It's when the men act like jerks and step on women and act and treat them like doormats that women have a hard time submitting. It's when men are not living Christ-centric lives that women have a hard time submitting to their man. But when you have a man who's completely submitted to the Lordship of Christ and is intimately building on that relationship of intimacy with him and is seeking to emulate the qualities and the characteristics of Jesus, what woman wouldn't like that? Notice it said, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, he talks about the submission here of Jesus And Jesus submitted his will to God's will and was willing to die on the cross. Notice that he shares then in this incredible aspect of our salvation, he loves the church. Christ loves the church. He loves the church. He loved the church so much that he died for the church. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He's talking about his wedding day. The saddest day of my life was when I gave my daughter away. Seriously. To an undeserving man. There is no man worthy of your daughter. David comes very, very, very close. He's about 98% there. The more I get to know him, the closer he gets to that 100%. But I remember that wedding day, and I looked at her as she came in, and we were in that little foyer of that church walking down. She looked beautiful. Why? Because she had taken hours, hours for her to look just right. And in her father's eyes, She was beautiful. We are the bride of Christ. And one of these days, he's wanting us to be presented on our wedding day. Perfect. Beautiful. Adorned in his splendor and in his glory. He is in the process then, as we get ready for that day, a process of presently sanctifying us. There's a sanctification process. 
Because God's not finished with you yet. I said, God's not finished with you yet. Turn to your neighbor and say, he's not finished with you either. I've got a list of things after church we're going to go over when we get out from lunch. I'm just... And the church has become so compromising today, so accommodating in what God calls righteousness, that we as the church of Christ today are afraid because we have become so seeker-driven or so seeker-sensitive that we're afraid to talk about sin. And if we as a church can't address sin in the family that God has given us, then how will his sanctifying work then begin to work out within us to prepare us for our wedding day? Paul said, I think, in Philippians 3, that he's not attained perfection yet, but he's pressing on toward that goal. Is perfection attainable on this side of heaven? No. But I hope you're being perfected. If you're the same old grump or the same old grout you've been for 20 years and nothing's changed in your life, you better check your salvation because there should be a progression of moving in the likeness of Christ. Let me close with this. 36 plus years ago, it December the 10th, it would be 37 years ago, I walked down an aisle at Lake Highlands Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. And I married this beautiful lady named Patty Willen Easley, who was the daughter of Ernest Claude Easley and Billy Sue Easley. Lake Highlands Baptist Church was a church where my mother grew up. And the same pastor that my, my mother had as a little girl married my mom and dad 30-something years later, married Patty and I in the same church by the same pastor. It's phenomenal. And uh, I have grown to love her more today than I did the day that I married her. I just thought I knew what love is like and what love is about. But love over these years grows. And if you were to ever to say anything negative or bad about my wife, we're going to go to blows. Say all you want to about me. I know you do. Go ahead. Just don't talk about my wife because I love her. And I think sometimes we talk bad about the church and I think it grieves the heart of God because he's saying you're talking about my bride. It says in this passage that he loves the church. He loved the church so much that he's willing to die for her. For you and for me and for us. And everything that should come out of our mouth about the church that we're committed and connected to should be to edify and to build up, to strengthen and to mature. For anything other than that, I think, grieves not only the heart of God, the heart of Christ, and the Spirit of the Lord. I'm not saying we're a perfect church. It will never be because we're filled with imperfect people. Now you have a perfect pastor, but we have imperfect people. Love your church. Love the people in your church. We've got to come together as one church under one Lord with one hope and one faith and one future in order for us to be the church that he wants us to be.
So what is your decision today as we close? What is God saying to you? What are you going to do about it? who are you going to tell? Let's pray. Can I have your attention for just a moment? If you would just stand where you are for just a second, if we can, I know, I mean, the ones who are in the pew, but that's all right. Kate, I want you to look out there. Everyone is standing to support you in your decision to follow Christ. If you're her family member, would you raise your right hand and let us see you? All the family members, Kate's family members, you see them out there? All right. Isn't she beautiful? Kate, it's my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in his death, to walk with him in the power of his resurrection. Pray with me for a minute. Father, we love you and we thank you for Kate's decision to follow you as Lord and Savior of her life. I pray that you would shelter her, protect her, build a hedge of protection around her as she grows in you. Help every one of us here this morning who are part of this family, use us and our giftedness and our time and our talents to invest in her so that she might become and grow up to be the beautiful creation that you intended for her to be that you might use her and guide her in your purposes to fulfill your great commission. Bless her life, Lord. Use her for your glory. It's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. We have two more, but please be seated. find the arm. This is my friend Scott. Scott has been coming on Sunday night for some time and a few weeks ago after the service as he had been sitting and listening to the study of Acts. He asked David Long, our chairman of Deacons, what does it mean 
to have that personal relationship with Jesus. And David shared with him, and Scott asked Jesus to come into his heart to be his savior and boss. Is that right, Scott? Yes. Because of that decision this morning, it's my honor and my privilege to get to baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism. And we're raised to walk in newness of life. my friend Isaiah's and Isaiah's let me ask you this have you asked Jesus to come into your heart to be your savior and your boss it's my privilege to get to baptize you this morning in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit we're buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life